0: Father, I do thank you for the word that you have given, Pastor Michael, that I thank you, God, for what you are about to do in this sermonic moment, Lord. I pray, God, that you would even now continue to decrease him and fill him with your spirit and fill him with your word. I pray that he would preach boldly, that he would preach prophetically, God, and that you would minister to him as you minister to us through him. So we submit this time to you, and we pray, God, that you, would, um, that you would have your way and that you would speak and move powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. What Pastor Michelle did not say is, they don't let me come. Uh, so, yeah, I had to pay... Uh, uh, Pastor David is my friend usually, or he used to be, and um, so I had to pay him just to come over, you know, and uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding, uh, and I could say that because he's not here. Uh, hopefully he's somewhere still having a good time uh, with his family, and I get to be uh, with my family. You all see my wife and my son all the time. Uh, So people over at Logan Square, they don't believe I'm married until, you know, Bryce and Dawn visits over there. And some of y'all probably wonder, where is that boy's father? Uh, uh, I am the one. I am the one. Uh, So uh, I don't get to come over here but once or twice, almost once or twice a year, you know. And uh, uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm always glad to be here. So when you are um, a visitor at a church, you don't know what to expect. And if you're visiting here today, you don't know what to expect from me. And if I screw up, you can just blame it on me being a visitor too, right? Uh, And you should come back. (laughs) Um, And uh, if this is home for you and you weren't here last time I was here, you're looking at me like, who is he? If if I mess up, you're going to come back anyway. So um, I heard uh, when I got here last Sunday to pick up my wife and son about Reverend Amelia's message, and uh, was, was uh, moved by how everybody spoke of her message last week. And then uh, when I heard the message, I decided uh, that I would just come up here and reintroduce her and let her preach part two. Uh, so did you bring your notes? Uh, no? Okay. Well, all right. Um, I'm glad to be here to join what I think is the most phenomenal preaching team in Pastor Michelle, Pastor Ramilia, Pastor Juan, you got promoted this morning, and, uh, and my friend Pastor David, just to, to talk about a part of God's story. So bow your heads, pray with me. Thank you so much, oh God, for the ways that you make yourself known to us. Thank you for every moment um, that we see and that we don't see when you're pulling us closer to you, when you're showing us something about you, when you're showing us something about ourselves. And we ask that um, this morning would be one of those moments that everything that we've already done in worship and what we will do as we turn to your word and as we offer more worship would be time where we get to know who we are in relationship to who you are. Thank you for every prayer that we've already prayed. And as I stand and join in the stream of this sermon series. Would you make sure that we visit with you in this time? Would you convince us of what we need to hear from you? And would you take in what I've prepared and in where we've been as a church, take these things and speak to us what you must. Be the most convincing one in our ears. Tell us that you love us in whatever way you want. Tell us that you care for us however you want to communicate that. We thank you for listening to our prayers that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No story survives without increasingly engaging characters. You have collections on dusty bookshelves. You have books in damp boxes in somebody's storage. Even if it's from your favorite author, the person you thought would write the best story, you have books and stories that you've discarded because nobody in the story reached you. No character in The short story, no character in the novel, kept you turning the page. How many of you read short stories, read novels? You You will never stay with a story if you're not hooked, if you're not reached to keep turning your eyes and turning your ear. something or someone has to be in that story to keep you coming back to it and 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 i think this morning about god's story as being similar in that in that the way we keep coming to god's story is because of increasingly engaging characters. And I'm using that word broadly this morning. But but in, in God's story, as you've heard about it, there is the character of creation and how God takes, takes an empty nothingness and brings out of nothing many diverse and beautiful things. There is the character of Israel in God's story and how God revealed grace to an uncreated creation and focused that grace in a particular people of God in the Hebrew people. God's characters includes the witness of the prophets and the written wisdom literature and the journey of God's people as they moved, as they journeyed, as they went through exile and after exile and bondage and freedom. And over and over, as readers of God's story or as listeners to God's story, we are pulled in We are hooked in until we await with the Jewish people a figure who is anointed, who is sent, who is salvific, who is in every way compelling. Jesus. God inserting God's self in the story, the way a skilled memoirist would, taking the best of creativity and unleashing the true events of history. So in God's story, all of these characters, characters like creation, characters like Adam, Eve, characters like the people of God, the people of Israel, characters like the prophets, uh, these these characters who lead to a main character, as it were, in Jesus Christ, all of these characters bring us to, as as Remilia spoke last week, to Jesus. who is born in the most humble, striking, and disappointing of circumstances. And he resets every expectation for a good story. Jesus obviously doesn't know how to end a good story. I mean, if if you've read any of his biographies, if you've read any of the Gospels, you know uh, that Jesus fails with the flash. I mean, he he has to offer what is the worst ending that really isn't an ending. He dies. The hero, who is the focus of the story, uh, loses his life and leaves his disciples busted, disappointed. Grief stricken. And then his story uh, shifts because the horrible ending isn't an ending. And the shift in the story keeps us leaning forward, keeps us peeking into God's uh, uh, story, into the God of this story, and leaving us hopefully hungry to respond to a kingdom. So this morning, I want to talk about that response. Uh, You've heard of the Spirit of God who hovered in Genesis over emptiness and who gathered people called Israel. You've heard of the Spirit who worked through the death of Jesus and those other events in Jesus' life. Of course, His birth and His ministry, His death and His resurrection. And the Spirit is a character. Jesus is a character. Israel is a character. This morning, I want to talk about the church as one of those characters in God's story. The church as a community of characters who in an increasingly engaging way keep us turning ourselves to the story of God and to the God of the story. So I'll start and be a little bit backwards. I'll I'll start by talking about one characteristic of the church and then one reason for the characteristic of the church. And then I'll be done. And the first thing um, about the church is that the church is a God-breathed people. A God-breathed people. There are places in uh, Scripture where we are aware of God's breath. You can think about the beginning in Genesis where the Spirit is hovering over waters uh, you can think about later in Genesis where God takes earth and molds earth and creates humankind uh, and breathes into humanity the breath of life. Uh, you may think about blustery uh, winds as the prophet uh, talks about how God speaks. And God speaking maybe through thunderstorms, but most likely through whispers and breaths. God has uh, breathe throughout the scriptures, but there are two places in the New Testament where God breathes upon the earliest church. And those two places are where I want us to look at shortly. The first is John chapter 20, and the second is Acts 2. So, so these are two places where God breathes upon the people who will become the church. First, in John 20, verses 19 through 23. I think this uh, is the new revised, uh, the new revised standard that I have for this passage. So I'll read it for you. It's up here on the screen. This passage is after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus. And you will notice where his disciples are, how his disciples are. And then what happens? Verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he said, After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. There are a lot of things to notice about the word of God for us here in this passage. But what I want you to attend to uh, for this part of the message is, is how Jesus uh, breathes on his disciples. Before he breathes on them, uh, he shows up behind a locked door. They are afraid and, and Jesus speaks to them what I think is a remarkable quality of God and of God's people. God's breath comes in the context of peace. Eventually, We see in the people of God, in the disciples, in the apostles, the early church, a fearlessness from the church's people in the face of death, in the face of marginality, in the face of struggle and diminishment. Eventually, they become a people after the resurrection, a people of ascension, a people of promise. They become unafraid of the margins of life. But before all that, they're locked behind doors the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. They are rehearsing the death of Jesus. They're thinking about what they just saw, and they're afraid that what happened to Jesus would happen to them. Of course, this is the same Jesus who said, what happened to me What happened to you. They are, they are thinking about the Roman government. They are thinking about Jewish leaders. They are thinking about the prophetic words of Jesus. And the Bible says before they were a fearless people, they were afraid in John 20 here. Now, other passages that talk about their fear are in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. And we'll look at that one. There's Luke 24 and then, of course, the passage in John. So let's look at another passage in Matthew 28 to see uh, this group or a part of this group expressing a similar uh, emotion. And then we'll talk some more about Jesus's response. Matthew uh, 28 verses 1 through 10. after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women these are the disciples of Jesus here, Mary and Mary do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, greetings. It's like a whole sermon. Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see Think about these two passages, these chunks of scripture in John 20 and Matthew 28. Uh, The second one has two Marys going to the tomb. And if you look at this passage in your Bible, you will see almost a half a dozen times where fear is uh, mentioned. Uh, These women are afraid. The soldiers are afraid. The angel tells them not to be afraid. Jesus gives them greetings and, and he tells them not to be afraid. They are responding to death. They are still facing death, the event from which no one returns. What does it take to have the strength for facing death? How do you get through a week when you know people are trying to kill you? How do you make it through your day when you know your supervisor has it in for you? How do you make it through a day or a month when you know something about you makes people try to take you out? Mary and Mary are responding to the death of Jesus. We know he has risen from the dead, but we have these little deaths in our own lives. We have major deaths, people who die and are gone, but we have all of these other deaths in our own lives. And death leaves us feeling a sense of deep brokenness. Leaves us empty. Leaves us barren, void, maybe dark. And Jesus becomes the only way forward after death. He tells his disciples that he is the way to the Father. In John 14, talking to Thomas especially, he says to him and to them, when you're looking at death, look at me as the way through death and through fear. So meeting Jesus becomes the experience of freedom over the worst of life and the worst of death. And when he speaks to his disciples to tell them not to be afraid in John 20 and in Matthew 28, what he tells them is that they can be a people who are defined by death overcome. Now, I, I don't want to try to do this because I I only heard the message. I wasn't here to feel uh, the message in person last week. But what I heard Ramelia talk about was this link up uh, between Jesus and us right his humanity uh his divinity uh being mixed into uh, real life issues right so you will think about jesus being so divine that he represents god to us and so human that he takes our language as his own language even when that language is i can't breathe so you have jesus on the one hand Leading his disciples to Calvary. Losing his disciples as most of them leave and the women only stay. And the Savior calling out to us and to God and to his executioners about his inability to breathe on the one hand. And on the other hand you have in John 20 and Matthew 28. Jesus coming to his same disciples and offering them a post-death answer to the real event of not being able to stay alive, not being able to breathe, being him conquering death. So Jesus links for us death and the church. And the church becomes Jesus's contemporary response, right now response, to death. The church becomes God's way of addressing death as it happens all the time. Jesus, who dies, breathes upon his disciples. And eventually says to them, the way death is addressed is by you. The church is a God-breathed people. So Jesus comes in John 20 and he says to them before he breathes upon them, peace. Peace is the security that comes with God's presence. Say the word security. It is what these disciples got that they didn't have before Jesus showed up in John 20. I want you to ask yourself a question as I'm talking to you, and that question is, uh, what you need when God feels absent? Think about that. When God in your life feels absent. What do you need? What does your uh, community, your neighborhood need from Jesus who shows up through you? In the story of John and Matthew and I think in our own lives the church is afraid. The disciples are fearful. And in the church, fear is a real emotion, but it is not the predominant emotion. Uh, If we say with these disciples that they are not afraid, we'd be lying. They're afraid, and you have reasons to be afraid in your life. I have reasons to be afraid in my life. Fear is present but it's not pronounced what's pronounced in the jesus community is peace and if our experience of life is like the characters in john and i think it is when we fear life at work or on the street or in class in school uh It is the experiences that we have with Jesus who breathes upon us, which open us up to fearlessness and freedom. We get to be a people of peace. And that peace becomes the quality of the presence of Jesus and Jesus' breath. So Jesus, who can't breathe, dies, rises from death, breathes upon a new community and says to that community, what I've given you, you give. Hold in tension these two. Because the disciples are still afraid in the presence of Jesus. The disciples are still fear-filled after Jesus breathes on them. John 20, Jesus, who rises from the dead, says, here's peace. And you would think that for these disciples who knew Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who joked with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, they will get a sense of overwhelming, enduring, life cannot take this away from me, peace. And that's not what happens. The people that Jesus himself breathes upon, this is God incarnate having raised from the dead, breathes upon this group, says to them, Multiple times. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Don't worry over this. Here's a sense of God's presence. I am with you. I am the way through death. I am the way. This is the one who breathes upon them. And they're still afraid. They still need to hear the same old word from God. That God has said to them over and over again. So if you feel like you're hearing the same thing and not getting it. If God is telling you the same answer to the same prayer and you still can't understand it. If you feel like you're praying about the same thing this year that you prayed about last year feel like as a church, we're facing the same trials and principalities that we faced always come to Pentecost in Acts 2. Because what Jesus does in John 20, the Spirit of God does in Acts 2. What was breath in John, Turns to wind in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit rushes upon fear filled, rattled people. People who were so close to God that they got to touch His side but were still afraid came to this holiday, this Jewish agricultural celebration with people from all over the known world, they waited, they prayed, and they experienced at Pentecost God making them the characters of the story. I used to say that Pentecost was kind of birthday for the church, and I'm somewhere in the middle of a change on that because because if the church is born when God's rushing wind meets them, what's born when Jesus breathes? John 20. It's at least a mini Pentecost when Jesus comes behind this locked door and says... (sighs) Receive the Spirit. But in Acts two, and we'll read it in a minute, what 's happening is that God is, is, is reintroducing an earlier theme from another part of the story. In Israel, the people of God were given laws. How many of you have read the exciting pages of Leviticus? Raise your hand. The Bible. Wow, I am surprised. How many of you have read all of Leviticus? Okay, just about all of you. Good. Leviticus is not uh, so much a page-turner in my view. Um, I have only read Leviticus because I've had to. Um, I've, I've read it a few times because, you know, I have to at some point tell people, well, I've read the Bible a few times, you know. Um, In Leviticus, in in, in Leviticus and Exodus 2, you get a sense of what God's laws are for the people of God. After uh, Mount Sinai, Moses has these laws, and you get all of this commentary, you get all of this explanation about the laws that the people of God were given. And most of the laws were social in nature. They weren't sacrificial. They weren't liturgical having to do with how you worship. Most of the laws, and you look at Leviticus 26 as a great example, and I, I didn't bring that. i are not going to spend time in it. But if you look at them, over and over, the earliest scriptures talk about living justly within your family, giving rest to your servants and to your land, caring for foreigners and immigrants and for people, Of course, the worship stuff is there, but most of the laws are social. And so the characters in God's early story are given these laws to learn how to live in response to God and in relationship to others. They are learning how to be social in Leviticus 26. By the time Acts chapter 2 comes around and God's people, Jews, are coming from all over the world to celebrate this holiday, the Holy Spirit represents the laws of God lived in this community of Jesus' people. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is a description of the way the Lord expected his people to be in Leviticus. Let's look at verses 42 to 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Jews are coming from all over the world in Acts chapter 2 for Pentecost. And Judaism wasn't one set of beliefs, wasn't a monolithic religion. There were all kinds of Judaisms. Just like today, there are all kinds of Christian denominations. There were all kinds of Judaisms. There were some major um, uh, uh, forms of of Judaism, but there were, there were many diverse expressions of Judaism. So what happens in Acts chapter 2, and most of the time uh, Christians tend to think, oh, they're the people who believe like Pharisees and people who believe like Sadducees. Those are two sort of predominant ways of doing Judaism, but there were half a dozen to a dozen different types of Jews. So what happens is all these people come from all over the Jewish world to celebrate Pentecost together. And people with varied views about Judaism meet these worshipers who didn't stop talking about the one who beat death. Jews get together with their Jewish friends and their Jewish friends are all of a sudden talking about Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, the Messiah. They aren't just Jews anymore. They claim the coming kingdom of Christ. They embody that coming so says this text and in the jewish community they have to work a kind of theological reconciliation they have to be in the same room the same synagogue around the same table with people who see things very differently from them and what begins to happen is they start reconciling their judaism their life together as they celebrate Pentecost. That's what it means for them to start being a reconciled community in Acts chapter 2. For us, it might not mean that. For us, reconciliation, being in a diverse community with people who are coming from all over the place, all over the city, all kinds of backgrounds, may not mean you don't believe in the same Jesus. You don't, mean, you don't believe in the same God. Reconciliation may mean something else. But, but peace-given people are reconcilers. People who are uh, disciples of Jesus, people who are breathed upon by God to receive the Spirit are people who have a task and their task is reconciliation. As I go to my second and last point, my question for you is, does that fit the life you're living? As you think about parts of you in relationship to other people that don't quite fit, are you sensing God enabling you to reconcile? Are you sensing God giving you the strength uh, to engage in the slow or fast work of reconciliation, of bringing different types of folks together so that they experience peace from Jesus? Jesus. probably say that a little bit better but the whole point seems to be peace given people being given an opportunity to spread that peace to people who don't look like them eat like them think like them and god bring present in the midst of that crazy reconciliation God breathes upon the church. The church is a God-breathed people. So when you start community groups uh, in a week or two in September, spend time thinking and sitting with uh, the space of waiting for the breath of God. As you think about the work, Of reconciliation. Uh, Sit in your own quiet time, if that's what you call it, or silence before God and and listen for the rushing of the spirit, which sounds like cloven tongues of fire, so that you can have strength to do the reason for being God-breathed, which is the second point. The church is a God-breathed people, why is the Church of God-breathed people? And I think you know this well, so I won't spend as much time on it. I was told I had as much uh, uh, as 40 minutes, and that means I have four minutes. So I'm going to ask for six minutes. Right? I'm not going to be here till another year, so give me. The church is a commissioned people. A commissioned people. There are three commissions in the Gospels. They all sound alike. They're in Mark 16, Matthew 28, and Luke 24. They're toward the end of each of those chapters. And in Luke 24, Jesus is talking to them before they leave. He is saying to them that my words that I spoke while I was with you, everything about me written by Moses and the prophets and Psalms, must be fulfilled. In verse 48, he says, you are my witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending you what my Father promised. He's talking about the Spirit. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. In commissioning his disciples' Jesus compels them to continually tell the story of God. He is with his friends and he lingers with them, having died and left them already. He waits with them, he spends time with them, he eats with them, and then he reminds them of what he's always said, and that is that he's going. They are there walking through gardens again, and he reintroduces the same old theme of departure. He says that he has another ministry to perform, and they have another ministry to perform. He tells them that he is entrusting the future story work of his life, his death, his resurrection to them. He's commissioning them. Imagine that he is entrusting them with the details of who he is, what he's done, and how this whole thing is supposed to look. Now, digital digital items, archived items, can be edited, but they didn't have a tape recorder. They didn't have a camera recorder. They didn't have any good scribes really writing down while they're walking through the gardens. Did you catch that quote that Jesus said? And it is this group who isn't always ready, prepared, and and leaning into Jesus' words to say, maybe I should write that one down. Can you repeat that? It's this group that Jesus says, I'm giving you the power to tell my story. It is this group who will rehearse the stories and talk about the stories and share the stories long before they even write the stories that he says, it's up to you. They are God's storytellers. And I imagine they're realizing that Jesus is serious about empowering them. This group, Jesus says, you're all I've got. And uh, he says that to us as a church. And I look look at the church in Logan Square because I don't know y'all so well. But I look at the church in Logan Square and I look and I say, I'd rather you not be in this group. That was supposed to be a joke. But it's us who are here, who God says, I have breathed upon you, I have commissioned you to be my witnesses. So think this morning about how well or how poorly you tell the story of Jesus. You with a bad memory. You with a proclivity to exaggerate the details. You who is sexist. You who makes things up. You who are so smart that God must be lucky to have you. You who have surrendered your life to Jesus for as long as you could remember. Us. You who is a great parent. You who can't cook if somebody paid you. It's us. We are the ones who are broken reconcilers, who are commissioned storytellers. And I think Jesus is out of his mind when I think of the Gospels. I think Jesus... I think Jesus gets up from the grave without all of it. I mean, I I look at him and I say, "You you have to be missing something in that glorified body of yours if you think that these people, that us, can do this. Maybe Jesus knows something about the way this story makes sense to the world. Maybe Jesus knows that a story that doesn't make the same sense the world wants it to make must be declared and embodied by people who are always incredible witnesses. Maybe Jesus knows that God's story that can't make sense can only begin to make sense when the saddest storytellers in the world tell it. So stay here, he says, in the city until you have been clothed with power. Sit until you believe. I want to close my sermon with the words of another prophet. Uh, I imagine she would uh, very quickly scold me for putting her words in the words of a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. Her name is Toni Morrison. And she's talking about writing stories, writing novels... And I think what she says is a fitting way of capturing how we ought to think about God's story. If anything I do in the way of writing novels or whatever I write isn't about the village or the community or about you, then it is not about anything. I am not interested in indulging myself in some private, closed exercise of my imagination that fulfills only the obligation of my personal dreams, which is to say, yes, the work must be political. It must have that as its thrust. That's a pejorative term in critical circles now. If a work of art has any political influence in it, somehow it's tainted. My feeling is just the opposite. If it has none, it is tainted. The problem comes when you find harangue passing off as art. It seems to me that the best art is political. And you ought to be able to make it unquestionably political and irrevocably beautiful at the same time. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, the political is what you came to change. You came to change people and systems in which people live. You declared yourself to be king, to be Lord. And there is no more compelling and beautiful. Sometimes confusing a declaration. And so, as your church, we ask for your breath to be upon us. Holy Spirit, we ask that your wind would be rushing over us. We ask that you would make us fitted storytellers, incredible storytellers, grace-given storytellers. In your name we pray. Amen.